I'm Anna Tonk. Welcome to How to Be Human, a podcast that explores the common and often confusing themes of humanness. I think that it is pretty well known on this podcast how I feel about therapy. And I am very pro-therapy. And I am thrilled today. I've talked about her a lot. I have mentioned in other episodes, which I feel bad about because that is confusing to y'all, you know, that I talk about these people and forget that y'all don't know the production calendar. So I've mentioned Catherine Morgan Schaffler several times. Um, and I was introduced to her by Ashley, who... I talked about on a couple episodes ago and she sent me an email or I I mean, not that it super matters. Maybe it was a DM, whatevs. But she said, I really think my friend Catherine, who wrote a book, would be a fantastic guest for How to Be Human. And I was super appreciative that she had even thought that. So connected with Catherine and immediately was like, wow, this woman's really cool. And then I got her book and it exploded my goddamn brain. Her book is so good. Her book is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And it's amazing. I was already intrigued about the topic of perfectionism. I think it's really interesting. I remember the moment that my own therapist told me I was a perfectionist and I argued with her and then realized I completely was. And I was dying to hear and read from someone who both is a therapist and this is their work and She's obviously uh, done a lot of study and work on perfectionism. And I felt so, I did not expect to feel as unbelievably seen and validated by this book as I did. And I know lately I've maybe been a little more like promotional or talking about friends or whatever. And I just want to be clear, like, I don't get any money for this. It's like literally that's where my loyalty shows up and my own evangelism of when something really works for me, I do want it available to everyone. And I really, really, Catherine is a really wonderful, lovely person in general. I really enjoyed getting to email with her and then doing the record with her. And immediately, just from the emailing, I was like, I already know I want to do another episode with you. So she's going to come back and we're going to talk about joy together. Very, very exciting. But I just want to be clear that I'm not just suddenly in the business of like promoting books, that part of why I'm talking about this book so much is it made me feel so seen and validated and it gave a lot of language to things I've both experienced out in the world and felt, but like didn't know how to articulate and also felt really alone in. There's a portion of the book where she goes in and I'm, and she's speaking mostly to uh, perfectionism in women, just to be clear. And the thing that really, really got me was this idea of how often we are subscribing to perfectionism in order to avoid punishment. And that is so true, you know? And it made me think about 
how often I've done things or made decisions. I don't know. It just really was thought provoking for me. It was very illuminating. It made me think a lot about where perfectionism shows up for me in my, my life now. It made me think a lot about where punishment shows up a lot for me as well. And I just hope that all of you listen and feel as validated as I did and glean as much insight as I did from Catherine. I just felt like such a wealth of knowledge. So please enjoy episode 57, Perfectionism with Catherine Morgan Schaffler. All right. I have been so excited to talk to you. Shout out to Ashley for introducing us. Ashley Wu. Ashley Wu. She's a newer friend for me. And honestly, one of those people who keeps enriching my life. And I'm like, thank you. I super appreciate this. I was just texting with her. I was sick the other day and she was like, oh, can I bring you anything? Because we live in the same neighborhood. And I was like, no, but you know what? You have become the kind of friend that I can just text and be like, I need soup. Come to my house. She's just wonderful in every way. She really is. And super smart. We're in writing class together and she's super smart. So it didn't surprise me that she would introduce me to you, who is an incredibly smart woman. Like, I was trying not to be intimidated by your credentials, but I need to know what it was like to work at the Human Growth Lab at UCLA. I was like, of all the places to get to work, what in the world was that like, Catherine? Well, so I did a lot of research in college, and I worked at the Institute for Human Development at Berkeley, where I went to school. And I did a, um, it was an internship at the UCLA's Hammond's lab. And that was working for Dr. Constance Hammond, who's like just a powerhouse in the field. The lab itself is named after her. And it was really deeply interesting. Like there's another, if I only had, you know, multiple lives, I would have gone down the research track. I had actually applied to a bunch of programs and decided that I really wanted to be more in the room with people and to do research. It's really more about studying from afar in Mm. in a certain way. But that was really interesting. We did a cortisol study on depression in young women, and I took spit samples every single morning (laughs) of like 60 women, and they kept a journal every day, and I read their diary essentially and measured the amount of cortisol in their spit and how that correlated with the things that they were talking about. And you learn to code all of that stuff. And it's just... I was like, I can't believe that this is my job to do this. And yeah, like I said, in another life, I would be doing that right now. I loved it. I loved it. But I love therapy slightly more. So have you always been interested in people and why we do the things we do? 
or why we feel the way we feel. I'm not even sure what that fascination is. And I think I share a similar one. I'm like, if I could do it over again, I, I thought I wanted to be a therapist, but then I was like, no, I think I would want to be a behavioral scientist. Like, I would think mm-hmm. I would want to be more, go down the Brene Brown path of like getting to research and analyze of like, why do we do the things we do? But have you always been sort of, I guess, observing and looking at patterns and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I had this moment of total lucidity when I was Mm. really young and it was, I've only had this experience twice. Well, one other time I had a moment of lucidity, but I was on LSD, so I don't count that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I was like 11, maybe 12, and I was in English class and we were learning about poetry and different kinds of poems. And we were learning about what a haiku is. And I was reading this poem by, I don't remember the poet. I don't remember exactly what the poem is called, but it was about geese that fly in a V formation in the sky. And the poet was just talking about how beautiful it was and that they wouldn't place the birds in any other way in the sky. And this, I had this moment of total knowing where I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do for my job. I'm going to help people feel like they wouldn't want to be anywhere else in their sky. And I translated that later into, I want to help people feel present, even if that's painful, you know, in any kind of form of just not trying to resist the moment. But it was really interesting to me because it wasn't a like, hey, that would be fun or, oh, I want to do that. It was like a knowing. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. There was a real deep recognition. And so I think I've used that as a filter for everything that I do. Because I've had a lot of different jobs. I've waitressed. I've been, you know, a bartender. I've done a lot of different things. And I try to bring that intention to my work of can I help someone feel more present in their life? And can I feel more present in my own life? Because I think we all struggle with that of like actually being inside of your body and mind and life in a way that makes you feel actually alive as opposed to just going through the motions and going through the day and not really actually experiencing what's happening inside you and around you on a deep level. I mean, yeah, I think everybody, if they're honest, has a complicated relationship with it, you know, because and that's what I'm so what we're here to discuss is your book. And I love in your book that you talk a lot about these things like, you know, presence, self-worth, some of these big, big topics. You really emphasize that it's not set it and forget it, you know, that we do have to actively work to cultivate and stay connected to these things. And presence is like, I was like cooking dinner or something. And I just burst out laughing because I was like, well, maybe we all avoid presence because like, it's not very fun, you know, like being (laughs) really, you know, and but presence and intuition feel similar to me in the sense of like, It's something that can unlock your entire life, yet we're like, we're really afraid of it and we're afraid of listening to it. And like, what is the data that comes in from these things? And I was like, well, when I'm present, I have to really admit, like, 
that my sofa is beyond dying and it is time to replace it. And it really is impacting my comfort level, you know, from like the basic stuff to that, to like the, I'm feeling a little insecure about it, like in an event I got coming up and I need to do some work to like feel a little bit better about going into that, you know, that we're always avoiding, you know, feeling some of these things. But I wanted to ask you, was presence part of your inspiration or why you wanted to write the perfectionist guide to losing control? Because it feels like you're not really talking a ton about presence, I think, until kind of a couple chapters. I think you're sort of giving a really strong case of why perfectionism interrupts our presence and inhibits it. You know, I do think that presence which is a word that everybody has a def- different definition for, mm. right? And what I talk about in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control is that we have this misunderstanding of presence, that it just automates happiness, and mm. it does not. Presence <laughs> can be really painful. You can be present and be tired. You can be present and be heartbroken. So I think it's heralded in like the wellness space as if you can just be present, everything else will be blissful. And that's not true. That's a mental health myth. And what I would like to offer is that presence guarantees freedom, not happiness. And freedom is like what you're talking about is just having the information of like what's helping you, what's hurting you, what feels good, what doesn't. And Once you have all of that stuff and then can build upon it with a sense of trust in yourself, which is the other thing I talk a lot about in the book Mm -hmm. of like, how do you begin to and continue to trust yourself when we are all people who make mistakes all the time and detach yourself from a narrative that isn't helpful of like, oh, I've always messed up or I'm not someone who's good at relationships, or whatever your narrative is, how do you dismantle that and start to trust yourself? And that's really what I think healing is about. Healing is not an informational issue. (laughs) We all know what to do, really. Mm -hmm. And healing is about learning to trust yourself. It doesn't matter if you know what to do if you don't trust yourself to do it. This leads me to, I guess, what I would be a personal question, sort of not a universal for everyone, but maybe it is. This book made me think so much about my relationship with dieting and diet culture and things like that. And one of my big lessons recently after being on a drug Ozempic that really didn't work for me and I got really sick and just for months just felt like shit. (laughs) And Uh it took a lot for me to finally go, you know what, I want like I want off this and I want to try just like basic stuff, you know, like, I just want to go back to like, good nutrition, maybe exploring like seed cycling, like this type of stuff. And I was like, I just have a really strong intuitive feeling my body's like cut the shit, like just focus on like good nutrition, eating regular meals, none of this diet shit, none of this deprivation shit, none of this like dysregulated type of stuff and weight lossy stuff. Let's just Uh start at the like the trusting your body, you know, and trusting yourself and not trying to get it perfect, not trying to come up, you know, something I found really interesting as well in your book is the myth of balance and how much I think we're trying to find these formulaic ways to like 
I don't know, like win the game of life. Like, I don't know what yeah. we think we're going to get. Like, I, you know, I have to stop myself all the time with this and to be like, there's no prize, Anna. Like, there's no parade coming. <laughs> like, you're not, you oh, know, yeah, like, yeah. you're not going to get recognized as the bestest girl. Like, I don't know what this, you know, and it is in and I'm like, so often, like what I come back to is like, you know, like what's getting between you and this, like what's getting between you and just cooking meals and going back to nourishing foods. And I'm like, trust. It's trust. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I know that diets work for some people. They have never worked for me. And I think in general, they do a lot more harm than good. And the people that they do work for is like 5% of the people. So <laughs> Truly. I don't think ever, yeah, it's like empirical evidence. And I don't think it's ever fair to write any one way off. I mean, we're all different. And also what works for you at a particular moment in time can change, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it is that you have had heart surgery, let's say, and you need a diet because it's too much for you to think about exactly what's going into your body and, you know, all of that stuff, right? So I think there are exceptions to every rule. Sure. But generally, I think diets are horrible. And I think they are focused on control and restriction and they make no allowance for pleasure and they often punish pleasure. And that's what you deny yourself when you don't trust yourself is you don't allow yourself to feel pleasure. And that is the real risk of dieting and anything that restricts pleasure because pleasure informs your intuition. And being able to allow yourself to encounter something that either makes you feel really good or kind of like, oh, I don't know how this feels, or like terrible, you need to be able to have access to that to know what to do. And what I see a lot in my practice and just in general is that women in particular, because our bodies, you know, we're taught that our bodies communicate everything about who we are, we are so focused on immediate gratification that we don't even give ourselves the chance to graduate to our pleasure. So we're fo so focused on like, can I master this outcome or lose five pounds or wake up every morning and exercise and all of this stuff to your point to like prove that you're kind of like yeah. going to win an award that nobody's even going to give you. <laughs> nobody's even paying attention, right? But pleasure is actually a serious mental health issue. And we don't think of pleasure that way. I think a lot of people think of pleasure in a sexual context and we think of pleasure as an indulgence. Yeah. But pleasure is actually one of the two core criteria that is used to measure whether someone's in a depressive episode. Like, do you have access to pleasure right now? And if you don't take your pleasure seriously, you're really in danger and it's not a responsible thing to do. We think denying ourselves pleasure is some form of discipline. No, it's not. It's not. You need to be awake to what feels good for you so that you can continue to do more of that. That feels dangerous to people because we don't trust ourselves. And we mm. think, well, what would feel good to me right now is to have, you know, some cookies and so if I allow myself to have cookies, then I'm going to eat all the cookies and then I'm going to get wasted and then I'm going to go and do, you know, a bunch of self-destructive stuff. So I can't do any of that. But what you're doing when you 
don't give yourself the chance to trust yourself is you're saying that you don't deserve to have power. You need to be controlled. Mm. And those are two very different constructs. Power and control are like lust and love. They, they look very similar, but they're worlds apart in so many ways. And so what we're doing when we deny ourselves pleasure is we're actually denying ourselves power. The pow- you know, I've found that my appetite and sleep, which I used to be really focused on of like, sometimes I'll, I'm an intuitive eater. So sometimes I'll go, it feels like too long without eating, right? It'll be like three or four mm-hmm. in the afternoon. And then I eat a lot at night. Like I basically intermittently fast by accident. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then some days I'm just like eating all day. And I've learned that my appetite regulates itself within a weekly window instead of a daily window. And my sleep does mm. the same. Like sometimes I really freak out if I don't get enough sleep or if I sleep too much. And then I'm like, let me just step back and look at this in the context of a week. And so I think everybody has their own rhythm that they need to explore and find for themselves. But you can't find that unless you take your hands off the wheel a little bit and start to trust yourself. Now, that said, you can't explore stuff that is hard and triggering for you without boundaries around it. And Mm. boundaries kind of, they're different than restrictions in a way that's like a whole other (laughs) book. I mean, you're so knowledgeable and I, the way that you connect all these dots and I think provide a little bit of a roadmap of like, if this is something that's coming up for you, these are some of the things related to it. So in your book, you're talking about five different kinds of perfectionism. And I did your quiz that people can take, which, you know, obviously will be linked on the Substack or maybe in, yeah, it'll be in the episode notes. I was 43% intense perfectionist. And you talk a lot about adaptive and maladaptive, which I'd like to get into in a second, because that was also very like freeing to me that, I mean, of course, I guess in a book about perfectionism, you're trying to dismantle that it's like a pass fail. You're either you're a good perfectionist or a bad perfectionist. I loved how you were dealing with that, you know, Mm -hmm. binary. But um, I did. (laughs) It was really funny for me to be able to read this in. Your story about confronting your own perfectionism is almost exactly like mine when my therapist was like, you're a perfectionist. And I was like, oh, I had literally have iced coffee on me right now. I was like, there's no way. Like, we shouldn't be in like white linen and like if I'm, you know, a perfectionist. And Mm -hmm. when you, there were so many different things, especially with the intense perfectionist that I was like, "Mm, I can think of many examples of when I've been adaptive and maladaptive. So Mm -hmm. I'm 43% intense perfectionist. I'm 29% messy perfectionist, 14% classic perfectionist, and 14% Parisian perfectionist. Oh, that is such an incredible profile. I love that. And it was cool to um, be able to read the book and see myself in like the various forms, which as a tarot reader, like a big thing I say to people when they'll be like, is that a good or bad card or whatever, is I'm like, we're all of them. 
we all have this in us. We're every single card. We feel every single thing. Like we're all this. So occasionally when I would start to like get my shoulders up and be like, look, I'm not that bad or I don't do it anymore. You know, I'm trying to defend myself to the book, you know, like the imaginary council in our mind. Yeah, exactly. I really yeah. appreciated like your take and your framing of these things so that you're able to see yourself within, you know, whether it's some of the stories of your patients or it, you know, just the way you list things out, but there's no reason to like shut down or be afraid because you give a really clear way of like how it serves you. I think, well, the beginning of your book, like the most brilliant thing I think about it. And this is where I was like, I feel like we've known each other for for a long time because you're being like, what does it even mean? I'm like all these people who are always saying, I'm a perfectionist, I'm a perfect, like, what does this even mean? And I loved how you were talking about, and it's something I felt kind of my whole life. It is this like drive. It is a really big drive. And like my brother even, you know, will laugh sometimes and be like, did you have to get all the drive from both our parents, you know? And, and, and I'm like, it's not all genetics. And he's like, well, then that just means I'm lazy. So I need it to be a little genetic. And I'm like, fair enough. But it's, he has it in different ways. But I found it really illuminating too. And I appreciated so much your perspective on gender that when we're talking about men, it's just accepted. They're not called perfectionist right. that it does seem like when it comes to the like, eh, so sorry, or I'm a perfectionist or whatever. Men don't explain their perfectionism. So, you know, there's so much that to unpack in everything you said. And <laughs> I think starting with just the framework of what it means to be a perfectionist and what perfectionism actually is. And in the research world, it's really well understood that we are in the infancy of understanding this construct. Mm. And, you know, I think generally right now in the zeitgeist, it's like perfectionism equals bad. And that's not how I see perfectionism at all. I think that perfectionism is a natural human impulse that all human beings feel. And the way I define a perfectionist is somebody who notices the difference between a reality and an ideal, right? It's this cognitive ability that is unique to our species. So we can see what's happening and see our reality. And we can also imagine this alternate reality, which is perhaps better in some ways. And, you know, the converse is also true. We can imagine it being worse. But we notice the difference between the reality plunked down in our laps and the ideal that we imagine. And there is, in some people, a consistently active impulse to try to bridge that gap themselves and get to perfect. And when I say perfect... And when I say perfectionist, and I talk about this in the book too, it's really, it's not fair to say that a perfectionist is someone who expects and wants all things to be perfect at all times. They want the weather to be perfect and they want themselves to look perfect and they want, you know, the commute to be perfect. And it's like an oversimplification of something that's actually much deeper and more beautiful, which is that 
you know, an idealist can see the ideal and be content daydreaming about it and saying like, wouldn't that be nice? And talking about it and, and, you know, being inspired by it on some emotional level. And a high achiever can have an intense drive and striving, but they can also be comfortable like stopping. And perfectionists are people who can't just look at the ideal. They have to actively pursue it. And they they don't really ever stop. Like a perfectionist can retire in their work, for example, but a part of them is always going to be pursuing whatever their ideal is. And perfectionism is so individualized. So we're not just talking about achievement in terms of common metrics of achievement in our society, right? Like bigger, better, faster, more, basically, um, money and status. I see perfectionism playing out interpersonally a lot with, I want to perfectly understand you. I want to perfectly be seen by this person. I want to perfectly be liked, right? That's a type of perfectionism called Parisian perfectionism. Perfectionism can also play out, well, I'll I'll go through the types of perfectionism personality-wise, and then I'll go through the five kinds that, that have like the personality stripped of them. I just want to say quickly that something I had noticed, like to your point about the Parisian perfections, because I do want you to list that out for us, is I had the realization that perfectionism is cropping up a lot more in my dating life. Mm. It's like I've worked it out a bit in my professional of how to how to channel it and direct it in a way that serves it. I've become adaptive. But um, yeah. where it's now maybe getting a little, I, I, I need a little refresh. I was like, oh my God, it's not my fear of rejection. It's my perfectionism. It's my wanting this idea, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. a couple kind of things converging, but I was like, oh, and I was laughing with my therapist because I was like, you know, when I do that thing of things that you've talked to me about numerous times, I go find a new source and then come back to you and tell you about it. And she was like, "Uh uh-huh. I was like, I'm doing that now about perfectionism. (laughs) And she was like, can't wait to hear it. But that was one of my big insights around that. And that's not something I would have come to on my own because it's, I think that we're saying perfectionism all the time, but like, I love the way you break it down and explain the different ways that it can express for people because that was an invaluable insight for me, you know, to, to, to think yeah. of it like the connection and stuff that I was like, this is not how it's not always results. So if you can tell us now, like the personalities, I guess, or the expressions. Yeah. So I want to hear more about, <laughs> about it showing up in your dating life. I want to return to that. But yeah, so the general offering in the book is it's a totally new, fresh way to reframe perfectionism because I am just stupefied by some of the approaches to perfectionism in the personal development slash self-help world because they all seem to be telling perfectionists to stop being perfectionists and that doesn't work. That's like... When does that work in the history of 
anything. When someone's never. like, oh, that thing that's intrinsic, like eradicate it. It never works. I feel like that should be your first clue that someone's like maybe not the person to listen to. If they're just like, right. I used to laugh with a trainer of mine because and say he should have an advice column because I he his advice was always like, don't. If if I was like, oh, he'd be like, don't do it. And I was like, oh, oh, helpful, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> right, right. And I really, I'm a big advocate for integrative approaches. So eradication to me is not an approach to healing and trying to get rid of something, whether it's a negative feeling or an, an aspect of yourself that you don't like, that doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it wastes so much energy because you're hemorrhaging energy, trying to stop yourself from being who you are. And there's nothing wrong with being a perfectionist. I think perfectionists are incredible people. I am a perfectionist myself. Perfectionism is not your problem. The problem is how you respond to your perfectionism, mm. whether you're responding in ways that help you or in ways that hurt and destroy you. And most of us initially respond to our perfectionism in which again is just that impulse to like work to reach the ideal knowing that ideals and this is what adaptive healthy perfectionists maintain a sense of awareness of that like ideals are not meant to be achieved ideals are meant to inspire and so the book offers this new framework of like being a perfectionist is like being a romantic or being an activist, right? You don't tell someone who's an activist, like, listen, sometimes this causes problems for you. So you need to just like care a little less. Um, <laughs> let someone else do it because that's not going to work. And you don't tell a romantic to like, look, just like be a little more practical. Don't believe in love so much. And then you won't get hurt so much. Or, you know, it's like being able to just start where you are and say, well, this is who I am. So how do I build a life and create boundaries around my life and my wants and my desires in a way that makes me feel good and energized mm. instead of in a way that is burning me out. And so it just removes eradication and really emphasizes integration. And then it offers five types of perfectionists and you know the five kinds of perfectionism that are propelling all of that stuff. So the five types are procrastinator perfectionist. And each of these types has their own strengths and their own weaknesses. And I want to say this before I get into the mix, which is mental health is fluid and context dependent. And that's really important to keep in mind because right now in our culture, we're holding on to categorical models of mental health, meaning like, am I depressed or not depressed? Is this person suffering from bipolar disorder or not? And it's like mental health does not work like that. And categorical models can be really helpful and convenient, but they are also too simplistic to encapsulate a human being's experience and they don't take into account context. So a lot of people who just went home for the holidays, for example, might have met some diagnostic <laughs> thresholds. <laughs> For a couple of, yeah. you know, I'm doing air quotes, like disorders. Like yeah. that doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. What it means is that you were in a context which strained mm. your mental health. And and 
those are, it's more difficult to think of mental health like that because it feels uncontained and people who are in a place where they're scared or maybe don't know what to do want containment. And that's what these labels of like, you're depressed or, or you're this or you're that offer is like safety in containment. But I want to be clear that that is not the truth. That is one way to think about something, but it's not who you are. Well, yeah, something I love, a quote from your book, investing in a pathologized version of who you are is a profoundly unnecessary use of your inner of your energy. It's also an excuse for you to avoid healing, which that's when I I was already pretty sure that if you formed a cult or needed someone to help you form a cult, (laughs) I was down. When you said that, I was ready to like rip my shirt off and like start, you know, swirling it around my head um, because I get so burnt. I think also with perfectionism, it's discussed almost like a humble brag as Um, well. And I've always had a weird feeling of like, yeah, I don't think it's like terrible, but I think it can also, if you just are always like, sorry, I'm a perfectionist or I'm a perfectionist, you know, like I'm running myself into the ground. Everything in my life is falling apart, but I'm a perfectionist, you know, it's been, it's like so socially acceptable, but something about this and a couple other things, I was like, Oh, it it does keep this lid on it. And I appreciate the way that you're saying, like, here is a way to sort of organize things a little bit. But like, you got to take the lid off. (laughs) Like, you got to like, try on the suit and see if it fits and explore what's in it, you know, like, otherwise, like, you will not gain anything from just continuing to say whatever it is, however you're pathologizing yourself. But so our categories. Yeah. And in my experience, you know, when people give themselves permission to explore who they are, it's harder for them to explore the good stuff. And it's harder for them to explore like what really brings you joy and what brings you pleasure and what really makes you feel like I am doing this well, or I am good at this, or, you know, anything that's really positive feels like not doing real work, you know, in a way. And it's like attending to your mental health does not have to be this miserable exercise of like dissecting all these ways that we're suffering. It can also be this really positive creative space where we're deciding like, what kinds of new connections do I want to make to myself, to other people, to my community, to new ideas? And that is attending to your mental health too. It's not, it doesn't have to be such a fucking slog all the time, you know? Or yeah, it doesn't have to be what I call trauma-rama. Like it doesn't always have to be trauma-rama, you know? Like it's not always, you know, investigating that like, I always tell people, like, why would you not go to therapy when it's literally like someone you can go to once a week and say, like, I want this in my life. How do I get it? You know, like with what I'm working with, like, how do I achieve this? Or this feels really daunting that it's a gift and a privilege to get to know yourself. Like, it's a gift to really get to know. And I think so many of us and I think there's a a real pressure, especially put on women if they're ambitious and if they do have drive. I love how much you talk about like so much of this is a mechanism to sort of like drown out women's desire to excel and things like that, like in terms of labeling things things and and that that 
it's just, I think we start labeling ourselves and saying, I'm this, I'm that too early. Like, I really thought I knew who the, who I was in my 20s. And now I think like, you were a fool. What a fool, you know, like you were just someone in your 20s, which is fine. So you should be, you know. Exactly what you just did is how I would like mental health to be constructed is like putting it in context because it's contextual and it's fluid. Like it changes all the time. So when I go home for the holidays, I am depressed ish. <laughs> or when I was in my twenties, I was, you know, this yeah. or whatever it is. It's like putting some landmarks around the way we talk about our mental health instead of having it be this monolithic thing that we spend our lives kind of figuring out how to do damage control over whatever it is mm. that we perceive to be our problems. And what I tried to offer in this book, you know, books about books by a therapist and going to therapy are two very different things. Yeah. <laughs> but I tried my best to put two years of therapy into a book to take these themes of, and I think perfectionism is a universal theme that continued to come up in my practice when I was working on site at Google, when I was working in residential treatment with kids that became wards of the state and were in and out of foster care so much and were abused and neglected when I was working in uh, New York City rehab. You know, I've worked in a lot of places with, you know, quote unquote, high functioning people and with clinically speaking, lower functioning people and it's all comes down to connection. Like that is really what mental health is about. And the book is propelled by the notion, and this is backed by research in particular, psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Perry's research that like your mental health is determined by your relational health. Meaning what are the qualities of connection that you have to yourself? Do you feel connected to yourself? Do you feel like you know yourself? Do you feel like you can trust yourself? And what are the qualities of connection you have to other people? And the breakthrough thing about that is it doesn't matter what happened to you. It doesn't matter what didn't happen to you. It doesn't matter, not in the sense of like, it doesn't matter at all. I don't want anybody to hear that as me being dismissive. But what I mean is your past does not dictate your ability to lead a meaningful, like high quality, joyful life now. And I think that that is, if we could all just really take that in and focus on that of like, whoa, wait a minute, I am in you know, a place in my life where I get to decide like what I want to do in terms of seeing this person or not, in terms of, you know, reading this book or not, in terms of eating these kinds of food or not, and like really bringing things into my life that make me feel connected and alive. And if I can do that, then that will buoy my mental health in a way that, you know, is just not talked about yeah. at all. And that I think is a message in the book that I really want people to get is like, it doesn't matter how quote unquote, like many healthy tasks you can do. If you don't feel connected to yourself and you don't feel connected to other people, you are going to suffer and you can't really feel or be connected to yourself if you don't know yourself. And so this book is, you know, guide is in the title on purpose. 
it's not an instruction manual because there could never be such a thing on how to be human, but it is a guide to like get to know yourself more and trust yourself more and ask yourself some questions about what you want. And I think that's a question a lot of women in particular don't ask themselves. Or even if they do, they frame the answer in the framework of a fantasy instead of an impending reality that could actually happen. It's like, well, I would want this, but, you know, that's just in some kind of like daydream world. And if I could wave a magic wand and get, get my reader to encounter anything, it would just be to like take your want seriously. Like, what do you want? Say it out loud. You know, like, don't be afraid of the answer. And even if the answer surprises you, like move towards it with some curiosity and don't worry about like how much it looks like that's not going to happen. You know, just be in a place of possibility instead of fear. And that's really easy for us to be on a podcast and be talking about and much harder to actually do, but it's not impossible. And I think if you can focus on strengths-based models of care, which is like, let me use my strengths to get me where I need to be and help me stay where I need to be, you know, maintain my growth instead of like, let me hone in on these weaknesses and try to turn my weaknesses into strengths all while neglecting my natural strengths that come so easily to me because we're so focused on like optimization and like not having any limitations or weaknesses. (laughs) Like we are human beings. We are going to have limits. We are going to have weaknesses. We don't like productive and I know productivity is such a loaded term, which I am not on board with that because I think productivity can be really a wonderful thing as long as your productivity is aligned with your values. But productive personal development, like factors in the law of diminishing returns and like focusing on your weaknesses to the point where you're like, I've got to be someone who like wakes up early when you're just not a morning person is again, like you're just hemorrhaging energy trying to be who you're not. And you're, it's like, don't worry about that. Like worry about what you're doing well and how you can kind of maximize that instead of just trying to make yourself a human being who doesn't struggle ever. Yeah. I loved what you said in regards to classic perfectionists. You said, The systemic way of operating that classic perfectionists default to doesn't encourage a spirit of collaboration, flexibility, or openness to external influence, qualities that help us build connections. The risk of this interpersonal style is that it can unintentionally generate relationships that veer towards the superficial and transactional. In turn, classic perfectionists can be left feeling excluded, misunderstood, and underappreciated for all they do. I cannot tell you how many women who I read their text and that's what's up you know Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I really and I thought what a gift that line is for explaining to someone why maybe their relationships aren't why they're not getting what they want you know because I don't think most people 
want things to feel transactional unless that's what it is. You know, if you're if you're going to, you know, get a service, maybe you don't need to feel like your besties. Fair, you know. But I think what you're speaking to is in you know interpersonal relationships and things like that. And it is something I've heard from you know friends that I would guess now or maybe more classic perfectionists that like this is somewhat what's at play and they have a hard time, I think, understanding why this drive that maybe makes them so successful in one place of their life doesn't in another. And I think about this all the time in terms of like productivity and optimization is like, I'm listening to Marissa Meltzer's book, This is Big, about the founder of Weight Watchers and talking about how diet culture sort of didn't really begin until industrialization when people, and it was mostly applying to men because they weren't out in the fields anymore. So suddenly, you know, weight was a thing, was a topic. It's so interesting to me, this relationship between machine and human and this like how much we want to take like these things that have enhanced our lives in terms of technology and things like that and apply them to us and it's like we can try to fight it as much as we want but it's like we're organic matter (laughs) we are we I mean I like my new thing I've been saying to everybody who will listen is like I better get to go to heaven because I have so many questions for God because I just find it fascinating that you can be driven to want to really excel and connect. I mean, something like you've said is like, I, and I felt like this fondness for perfectionists of how much there is this drive to connect, you know? And it is so sad to think of people being after that and and not able to get it. And I thought, I think like with a lot of personal development, self-help, it's like either so vague, it could, could apply to anything, you know? Mm-hmm. or it's like so specific you're a little like or it's just don't and your life will be great right. you know and right, right, I right. appreciate that you really took to me what feels like this such a human perspective of when we think about mental health like it's so intellectualized it's so cerebral I think at this point and I really appreciate how you articulated some of the like practical ways these things show up and play out in our lives that it's like not just that you want the paint to be a certain color or whatever it's like it's impacting individualized yeah individualized and it's ever-changing and so you know to speak to that the five types are and again like we move through these types even though one can generally be predominant again, they're all contextual. So the classic perfectionist is like sort of what we all think of when we think of the Mm -hmm. perfectionist, kind of this person just adds so much structure to every situation. They're hyper-reliable. They're very organized. But again, on the con side, they can engage in an interpersonal way that just kind of engenders more of a transaction role and they can end up becoming like hurt and feeling left out because they're like, you're not appreciating all that I'm doing or, you know, they don't come across as warm perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then there's the procrastinator perfectionist who like wants the beginning to be perfect. And so these are the people who are excellent at preparing. They can see multiple perspectives. They see everything from a 360-degree view. And they're not impulsive, which 
can be such an asset. And at the same time, they can wait too long if they're not managing their perfectionism to begin. And then there's the messy perfectionist, which is a little bit the counterpart to the procrastinator perfectionist. And messy perfectionists are like, start happy. They have no anxiety starting. And to effortlessly push through the anxiety of starting something new is like a major pocket ace. (laughs) And messy perfectionists can just do that in, in their sleep. But the problem can come and they're like super idea generators. They're just like very inspirational, intoxicating people to be around in a certain way but they cast their net so wide and they have difficulty when the middle of something, a relationship, a project, whatever it is, isn't perfect. And they're like, oh, this tedium is like so boring. And they just kind of like, it's not no longer romanticized and, you know, it's a detractor. And then there are intense perfectionists who are really focused on the end point, the outcome of like, achieving this goal. And they have razor sharp focus and are really helpful to be around and to be that in in that one regard. But they can also lose sight of the spirit of collaboration or, you know, treating themselves and others with care. You know, intense perfectionists can sometimes burn the candle at both ends kind of thing. And then I talked about Parisian perfectionists. So I think I got them all. Did I say all five? I think you did. Yeah. And so that's this kind of framework of personality. And then understanding that perfectionism can be adaptive. You can use it to help you and um, heal you. And it can be maladaptive. Right? It, it can really erode your sense of wellness and your health. And so the point is not to figure out how to stop being a perfectionist because actually a perfectionist is an enduring identity marker. So people who relate to that identity relate to that their whole life. And one way I think we've tried to solve for this, which is not a good or effective solve is, and this is particularly women do this, is by calling themselves like a recovering perfectionist. Yes, which is a term I really loathe Same for many reasons. I hate it almost as much as recovering people pleaser. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you don't need to recover from who you are, first of all. And secondly, you will not hear a man say that. Yep. And there's a reason for that. And perfectionist is a highly gendered implicit marker, similar to the way that bossy mm-hmm. was used to regulate authoritative characteristics in girls and women. Like perfectionist is low-key risen to regulate ambition and power seeking in women, right? And this is a really important I want this to be caught before it hits the zeitgeist in a way. Because it's like once we shine awareness on these things, that's all we need. Like everything else self-corrects, you know? But I talk about the gendered nature of perfectionism a lot in the book. I have a great quote from your book because yes, you do. And I loved it. 
Here is one. We broadcast implicit gender performance expectations by nestling them into everyday language, i.e. working mom. Language also serves a regulatory function by reinforcing said expectation through varying degrees of punishment and reward, including the reward of no punishment. For example, deviating from implicit gender performance expectations of appearing to be a healthy, balanced woman brands you a hot mess, a punishment. Incorporating gratuitous ex exclamation points into your email etiquette means no one can call you a bitch. The reward of no punishment. Yes, there are women who subvert gender performance expectations to successfully gain industry respect and power, but these women do so at tremendous personal and professional costs, um, not at tremendous risk. The risk is bypassed into immediate cost. That, I mean, listen, I was already still twirling my shirt above my head and pledging my allegiance to you. But when I read that, it gave, and this is why I want everyone to read your book, it gave language to what I really felt crushed by in television in my 20s and 30s of mm -hmm. not feeling like I could ever fucking win by like mm -hmm. just being myself you know that if I did just say no I don't want to do that or if I wasn't like oh my god can I get that thanks bye you know like yeah. all of that you and I never would have that get and that was and I want to be really genuine like that was really healing for me to read like it was mm -hmm. really healing for someone who I don't know read it in a book like that's a thing you know because I feel like when you're anyone who's talking about like microaggressions and things like that like I think you feel like people start to tune you out or you're like complaining or or something like that and reading that was so validating to me of like, I didn't make it up. Like that is a real thing. I do feel yeah. caught often. And it's mm -hmm. some of my work has been teaching myself how to just like let myself be myself, you know, and know that I'll deal with whatever comes, you know, if there is punishment or fallout or whatever that I'll, I'll deal with it. But I loved that you, you know, laid it out like that. And I know we have to start wrapping up because you're such a busy woman. JK, I don't even know what she's doing after this. I made that up. Um, <laughs> she just literally has a life and, and, and another obligation. But there's so much, like, you used perfectionism, I think, to, like, ground your book and get, tell us what we're all talking about. But there is so much in here that it's just really helpful in terms of mental health or like if you are someone who struggles to allow pleasure and joy into your life, I love that you keep coming back to that. You know, like I love what you say about when you're disconnected from your self-worth, you're fixated on control. You may be experienced as demanding or needy to be around because you're so attached to a specific outcomes unfolding. You need something to happen in a certain way to feel relief, whether you realize it or not, you were desperate. Now, most of the time when the word desperate's being thrown around it doesn't feel so good it's never a good sign but what a gift that line is of like if you you know it's like if you're feeling this way are you you know there's a whiff of it kind of in the choices you're making like here is some language as to why like here's you know that I thought you've 
made this incredible book that is so compassionate while also being, you know, so informative and helpful. And, you know, a million thanks to Ashley for connecting to us, uh, connecting us, because I didn't expect to have my mind so blown by it. And it's just been a real treat. I'm so... Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, you're one of the first people to really read the book and having your early support means so much because I put so much into this work and I tried to have the first part of this book be a real dismantling of like, do we all think perfectionism is bad? Because there's a lot going on here when like we think about female perfectionists like Marie Kondo or Martha Stewart and we celebrate them. And can we question why we're celebrating the kind of perfectionism that centers around archetypal homemaker interests. Mm. And we question and look at perfectionism in a cultural context, in a culture that is propelled by misogyny and why perfectionists like Serena Williams are constantly punished and constantly, you know, on a wind tour because she's not maybe leading with her maternal side is is painted as like a devil in Prada. And just like all of these things to think about um, that we don't ever talk about. We just like reduce perfectionism to this one like bad thing. And it's a part of all of us and it's a part we need to turn to and welcome with boundaries and think about in a totally different way because that releases resistance. And when you release resistance, you just free up all this liberated energy to focus on what you're bringing up, which is like, what makes you feel alive? What makes you feel like you? What brings you to a state of peace? It doesn't have to be happiness, but like, you know, peace and joy and all of these things. And yeah, the latter half of the book is really about the more practical, like here are 10 key perspective shifts to help cement all the stuff I kind of floated in the first half of the book. And here are eight different behavioral strategies, like reframing, for example. Reframing language is really powerful. And before we go, I just want to offer one reframe for people, which is probably my favorite reframe. And that is you know, reframing is when you shift language to enable a more helpful perspective. So like, I can't stand it when people say that women who elect not to have kids are childless because I think of them as child free. And it's like, just the less implies that they're missing something or missing out on something when like some women do not want to have kids and lead very joyful, fulfilling lives, not having kids. And so that's one, just one example of, of reframing. But the one that I love the most is like when we think of asking for help and when people say asking for help isn't a weakness, it bothers me because <laughs> it kind of like presumes that you are already thinking of it that way. And I think yes. people do, right? We think of asking for help as immediately meaning, well, I can't do something myself, so I'm not good enough, or I'm weak, or something is wrong with me. And a way to reframe that is like, asking for help is a refusal to give up. Mm. And I think that reframes asking for help as like, that's something that someone really determined does. That's something that someone who has a lot of strength does, which is all true, right? And so, 
that's one example. There's 25 reframes in the book. And there's just like, I find myself in this weird position of like trying to be, trying to sell it in a way. Obviously, I want everybody to read this. And I think that when you really believe in what you've created, Seth Godin has this really wonderful quote that like, your marketing is an act of generosity. And so it's like, I really believe in this book. I put a lot into it. And I think that it will help people feel more connected to themselves. And because I know that mental health is really about connection more than anything else, I just hope people like it. And I really am so appreciative for you for giving me this space to talk about this work because I've been in a moment of incubation of like writing this in solitude. I wrote it in the pandemic and now I'm coming out back into the world to talk about it and it's feeling really good and it's really nice to connect on this and share it. And I just appreciate this platform that you're sharing with me so much. Well, happy to do so. The book is incredible. Where can people find you? So the book is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. And where can people find you? Or where would you like people to find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And that's also my website. So CatherineMorganSchaffler.com. And the book is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And I really think that people are going to relate to it because it talks about so many universal kind of how to be human things. Yeah. (laughs) So I hope you get it. Yes. Everyone should run out and get it now, preferably from (laughs) bookshop.org. That's it. Thank you so much. Bye. When we recorded this episode, I had not finished her book because to be honest, I was caught off guard by um, how good and dense it was. And honestly, how like thought provoking it was for me that I kind of read it in fits and starts. And so I've finished her book. So I feel good that even if for the interview, I had like just gotten over halfway. Uh, Now for the ending, I can say for all the brain exploding, the beginning of her book did, I really felt like the second half of the book was also really super helpful for integration and integrating. So I will say that as a follow up about the book. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Catherine and I hope you look forward to the episode that we are going to do about joy. So hope you enjoyed that. Thanks everybody. Bye. That's all for today. If you're interested in submitting a topic, please go to anatonk.com and hit the contact button or you can email me at annatonk at gmail.com. If you're a fan of the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help.